Hello and welcome to Ed Talks UK. I'm Ian Usher and I'll be your host for this episode. Now today we'll be talking about assessment within schools and early years settings. And for today's episode, I'm joined by two guests um, from Hearts for Learning, Rachel McFarlane, who's the Director of Education, and Mireille McCrailed, who's the Education Services Director for Early Years. Um, Rachel and Mireille, welcome to both of you. Thanks very yeah. much, Ian. Great to be here. Your responsibilities at Hearts for Learning are supporting schools and settings in a range of different uh, contexts. And obviously assessment will vary between institutions and then between the contexts in which those institutions set. Can I ask each of you, what are the main issues with assessment and some of the developments in assessment that are taking place in the areas that you oversee? Can I start with you, Murray, for the for the early years? What, what's, yeah. what does assessment look like at the moment? Of course, Ian. Well, um, in early years, there really is quite an awful lot happening. Um, particularly because of the EYFS reforms and the changes to the statutory framework, um, in particular, the educational programmes within that statutory framework and the early learning goals. And of course, we have the introduction of the reception baseline assessment, which is ultimately going to be a school's accountability measure for children, um, their starting points and their progress uh, right up until the end of key stage two. Um, and I don't want to harp on too much about that, but it is going to require quite a lot of teachers time in that very first part of the autumn term to assess children's starting points in communication, language, literacy and maths, rather than where we have previously seen that holistic assessment. So um, I think it's fair to say it's a busy time for our teachers and practitioners working in early years. In terms of those reforms, particularly in the early years, do you feel that assessment is at the core of those reforms or is it almost like a bolt on and an afterthought or is it some people say that assessment is the tail that wags the dog in education because it affects what you can teach and how you can teach it. But do you feel in that particular setting in early years that um, assessment is really kind of a keystone in that or is it just a, a, an addition to it? Well, I, 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 it's really hard to say in early years because it is so integral to um, what happens within the um, getting to know young children. Um, and the, the reason the reforms have been crucial is because not just of those endpoint assessments and the way they've become more specific, um, it, it's linked to teacher recruitment and teacher retention. Um, uh, as well as looking at those goals and making them far easier for teachers to make accurate assessment judgments. I mean, the, the aim of the EYFS expectations uh, is, and these changes is to align them more with national curriculum and readiness for year one. So there is an element of sort of raising the bar, but it's also around introducing more specificity to, to make that judgment um, far easier for teachers. But we've also seen the removal of the exceeding judgment in um, the practice that is happening or would be happening currently, hasn't happened because of COVID for the last couple of years. Um, and that is going to mean that there's going to be much sharper focus on those dis discussions between reception teachers and year one teachers to see which pupils and to understand which pupils may be on track to reach greater depth further on. Um, because, of course, we've got that removal of the exceeding judgment, as I said. So, um, yeah, that, that's just one element uh, of the assessment issues. The, um, the other element is that the workload 
perhaps could have been um, caused by a lot of assessment information gathering, which had, had come about in the forming of learning journals, which had been kind of uh, become quite an art in, in the early years. And of course, we'd also got then the introduction of um, electronic learning journals, where there'd been this working through um, key milestones almost as a tick list. So when you're talking about the, the tail wagging the dog, that's the part where we started to see those milestones really dictating what practitioners were doing rather than them thinking perhaps aspirationally about the curriculum. And that's the shift we're seeing, that sharper focus on the curriculum and high aspirations for all children rather than practitioners really being wedded to milestones and really looking at, at the here and now, not that the here and now isn't important, but really looking forward to where we want children to move through in their career. And Rachel, beyond the early years, what's the picture of assessment and how is it changing um, for other key, key stages beyond the early years? We're at a really exciting time at the moment because of course May, June is normally the time when children in year six are preparing for and sitting their SATs assessments, standardised assessments right across the country um, and at GCSE, uh, key stage four, taking their GCSE exams age 16 and in the sixth form taking their A-levels and of course supplemented by various vocational courses as well. And we're now in a second summer season when those national exams and standardised assessments haven't taken place. But of course, we're also in a huge uh, assessment, terminal assessment frenzy, because what's replaced those formal exams and assessments is teacher assessed grading. And we've got primary schools busy pulling together summative documentation around the skills and achievements and performance of year sixes so that they can send that data through to secondary schools and aid a smooth transition to the next stage of, of learning. And we've got um, GCSE and A-level teachers and BTEC teachers determining grades in place of what would normally have been exam generated grades. So it's a really very interesting time and is, I suppose, shining a very sharp light on what assessment has been like, what it maybe could be like, uh, the deficiencies of our current very exam heavy or terminal standardised assessed heavy ways of evidencing progress, attainment, strengths, knowledge, learning dispositions, character, etc. And what we're seeing nationally is the emergence of a number of very interesting um, task groups, movements, all united by a common interest in really looking in a broad and holistic and generalised way at the purpose of assessment and what makes great assessment. So I'm uh, part of a movement called Rethinking Assessment, which has been working for now about two terms and is planning uh, to, to carry on some really interesting work around what is the purpose of assessment, uh, what should assessments measure, what do we value and what do we measure because of course we know we're in a situation where what we value tends to be what we measure and we measure what we value. Um, and we're looking at a range of experiments around building on best practice and interesting innovative practice from all around the world from a number of countries and jurisdictions around holistic and varied ways of assessing strengths and evidencing attainment. So building on from that, if there is a light being shone on assessment at the moment and talk of rethinking it would 
to my mind, involve retaining what's going well and then modifying what isn't. Can I just ask you, Rachel, what is going well in assessment in schools at the moment? What's a, an example of good practice, effective um, frameworks? What is it that you would say we need to retain this? We have a, a very one dimensional system, particularly at Key Stage 4 and Key Stage 5, which is that in most subjects, the sole way of evidencing is through terminal exams. And terminal exams or standardised tests have their place. They're good at measuring certain skills and knowledge. They're standardised and therefore um, there's a degree of equity and equality about them, although there are some equity issues thrown up about high stakes testing, which disadvantage those students who maybe have a special educational need or a mental health condition or who missed a degree of schooling or who have a English as an additional language and maybe get uh, flummoxed by the rubric and the linguistic nuances of an examination question and aren't able to demonstrate their knowledge because they get thrown by the question. But they have their place. However, we know that there are all sorts of strengths that can't be measured through writing about what you know. And we also know that the high degree of memory recall and regurgitation of factual knowledge doesn't demonstrate the practical application of that knowledge and the breadth of skills that are valued and required by employers and higher education institutions. They don't, for example, give an indication of articulacy or oral performance. They don't give an indication of how well a young person can work in a team or in a group or with peers. And those collaborative skills are really valued in, in almost all employment situations. So we know that there are some deficiencies of a terminal one take uh, standard timed test. And what many people are interested in exploring is the potential of open book exams, of um, vivas, of the opportunity to take tests when you're ready, a little bit like you take your driving test when you're ready to take your test rather than everybody taking it on their 16th birthday. Um, so there are all sorts of other ways of enabling students to demonstrate what they can do and the strengths and skills they have. And ironically, at early years, we do this so much better than we do at GCSE or A-level. So the early years framework is a great example of the young person and the teacher and the teaching assistants and the parents and family members all coming together to collectively record and demonstrate and capture and celebrate a whole range of skills and knowledge and progressions that a young person makes in a really holistic way. We also see that demonstrated really well in many university courses, where again, young people are assessed not just through examination, but by workplace placements where very often um, experts will assess them, um, an architect in an architect's practice or a GP in a, in, for a medicine degree. And where we see children as undergraduates being required to perform in oral presentations, through posters, through group work, through collaboration. And very often a part of their degree grade is determined by their personal characteristics and their degree of professionalism. So we have this rather strange situation at the moment where in the early stages of formal education and in the latter stages of formal education, we actually have a really multifarious means of assessing and evidencing progress and then in the primary and secondary years it seems to get sort of in some way squashed down to a rather 
one size fits all examination or testing regime. And Mireille, in the early years, Rachel's talked about how effective assessment is and maybe uh, an exempt, exemplar for other sectors or certain other elements uh, of the school system. What would you say are the real high points of how assessment is both uh, carried out effectively and then has good outcomes for everybody involved? Well, one of the highlights for me, Ian, is the fact that in early years, assessment is uh, implemented best when it does gather information holistically about a child in an ongoing way and it informs really responsive practice. And that's why I'm really pleased that in elements of the EYFS reforms that we're seeing the focus being brought back to adults really getting to know children, to understand them, to, to really find out what they're interested in, because when children are really interested in something, that's what motivates their learning. And that can become the, the vehicle by which adults can then teach new skills and knowledge. Um, so those interactions, if adults really know children well, can be matched to the developmental needs for the child and the support that they require for learning and progress in the moment. Um, and I think, as Rachel said earlier, it's not to say that those kind of summative checkpoints or, or periodic pinch points for um, summative data re review aren't important. They do help gain um, a snapshot or an overview of a child's development. Um, and they do help collectively look at uh, how it, provision can be improved or adaptations can be made for particular groups of learners or individuals. But it's the responsive practice that's really vital in early years. Um, and that's needed to recognise what children know, what they understand, what they can do, which will really enhance a child's learning and development in the most timely way. And of course, some of the systems and processes that have been adopted have focused practitioners far too tightly on compartmentalising assessment and spending time observing rather than doing that interacting. Um, and, and sometimes in those learning journals that are referred to, the content had become repetitive and um, perhaps emphasis on presentation. And when tablets had been used for assessment, they had become inadvertently a physical barrier between the child and the practitioner. So almost hindering what's, what's really valuable in early years, which is that observation, that responsive sort of assessment in practice. Um, and adults making that choice really skillfully about when to interact and when to intervene and support and scaffold that child's learning experience. So Mireille, um, in the last 18 months, although it may feel like three or five years, depending on where you're at in the school system, obviously we've been massively impacted by various lockdowns, the pandemic, which has had all sorts of effects on uh, children's lives, teachers' lives, the way that schools are run. What's been the impact of that on how you view assessment and how do you think assessment should look when we come back to something approaching, even if it never quite reaches, um, a pre-pandemic educational world? Uh, well, I think the pandemic has just absolutely reiterated the need to focus on what's really important with learning and, and high quality in the moment assessment focusing on on assessment in action through well-planned interactions based on a sound knowledge of the child to really close gaps 
and identify children that have got additional needs at the earliest opportunity. As I said, I think it, it really bring, has brought that to the fore. Um, we know that um, children uh, across the ages have had many and varied experiences during the disruption caused by the pandemic. And whilst many of our early year settings have remained open, not every young child has attended. So supporting children who are starting school and participating in the reception baseline assessment process, which will not provide necessarily a, a picture of a child's holistic development, is one of the many challenges facing um, school staff in the coming months. And it does seem rather juxtaposition with what we are, what we really need to be focused on right now, which is getting to know those children really, really well holistically from their, their starting point. And Rachel, beyond the early years, what's been the impact of the pandemic on assessment for everybody involved, for children, for teachers in schools, for people running and supporting schools? As Marais says, the pandemic has affected children in different areas of the country and from different demographic groups very differently. So it's really raised the question of equity of education and equity of assessing the learning, the knowledge, the skills, the strengths of young people. And we have a rather crazy system where a young person can have been in school for 12 years or even 14 years if we're talking about upper sixth students and yet all of their performance at GCSE or A-level is terminal and therefore if there's a threat to them sitting in an exam hall to take a GCSE for three hours or six hours or nine hours, um, they run the risk of not having a grade or a qualification in a subject that they've studied for many years. So if we had a system a little bit more akin to the continuous assessment and data and evidence gathering that we have in the early years, we wouldn't be in this situation where suddenly a pandemic strikes five, six of the way through a young person's education and there's a real risk that they won't get any form of assessment, which is why, of course, the teacher assessed grade scenario was introduced at the 11th hour and has caused quite a lot of stress and angst and a huge amount of workload for schools to fly something as a plan B in to replace something that was always a fragile system because it relied on all eggs in one basket at the very end of a course. Also, because of the stresses and strains that have been caused on many children due to bereavements, illness, um, unemployment of family members, change in personal circumstances, general fear about uh, contamination and pandemic and, and illness and disease, we're also seeing quite rightly a lot of concern about high stakes testing, the impact that has on the adolescent brain and the detrimental way in which it affects the ability of a young person to demonstrate their true potential in learning. So this is really challenging for the cohort that's going through formal examination this year and the one that went through in last year's cohort. But it also gives us an opportunity to really look at unintentional disadvantages, biases, problems with different ways of evidencing performance and achievement. And pretty much any way of evidencing or assessing has potential pitfalls. We know that teacher assessments can often incur teacher bias, that very often teachers unintentionally give higher marks to the well-behaved, compliant, attentive children. Um, but then we know that examine, it's 
examiners who mark written exam papers often mark down children with scruffy handwriting. So in any assessment system, there is the potential for degrees of bias to come in. And I think this is opening up in the best schools and settings. This is opening up debates about what do we need to be aware of in ensuring that the way we assess performance is as robust and fair and equitable as possible? What methods do we need to put in place to ensure that all the disadvantages that young people have faced because of the pandemic to as far as is humanly possible are overcome? And I've had some really interesting conversations in recent days, including just this afternoon, with schools that have introduced a tag process, which they think is far more equitable than the normal exam season, whereby they're, they're asking students to take a series of tests in timed conditions and examination conditions, often in classrooms or sometimes in exam halls, but they're interspersed in between teaching and learning episodes. So rather than for a 16 year old or an 18 year old, the course just stopping and formal examination coming to a halt and then the children going home for a period of exam leave and just coming into school for a round after round of high stakes, three hour, four hour long exams over a period of sort of five weeks, which is a bit like an assault course um, and just, a, you know, being on adrenaline for week after week after week. There's a much more humane and healthy balance of We'll take an hour long test and then we'll have a couple of hours of teaching and learning and the opportunity to um, to to cool down and to reconnect and build the relationships with your teachers and receive a bit of coaching or advice or guidance rather than teachers effectively waving goodbye to students and not having any of that sort of intervention or coaching or relationship with them again um, and the next week just being this you know as i say assault course of exams and for anybody involved in education like it or not assessments are also used for performance measures for schools with everything being not up in the air but so many things changing whether it's the uh, the new uh, legislation for early years or all of the conundrums posed by teacher assessed grades what's the impact on those performance measures for schools who are in a maelstrom of change all sorts of things coming at them from all sorts of directions what are performance measures? Do they stand up at the moment or are they just kind of aspirational views of a school at best? And were they ever anything more than that? There are a whole host of ways of evidencing the quality of education in a school or a setting, including destination data, attendance data, uh, behaviour, exclusions, rewards, sanctions community contribution, feedback from parents and, uh, and local residents. I think it's really interesting that those who assess the quality of education, including Ofsted and the DfE, are now needing to rely on a much wider and more qualitative evidence bank, which is fascinating. And I hope that what comes out of the experience we've been through in the last 18 months is a recognition of the fact that what makes a great school is a really multifarious set of factors evidenced by a really wide ranging set of data. So there will always be a place for looking at quantitative outcomes and of course examination performance and other evidence that documents achievements and skills and knowledge of young people is vitally important to support them in their transition into the next stage of life but there are a whole range of ways in which we can assess 
the impact that educators have had, not just on the knowledge of young people, but on their skills development and on their character development. Mm -hmm. and, and with early years, what we've seen with the reforms is that the educational programmes are coming in with far greater specificity and there's increased expectation in the in the revised early learning goals which contribute to that early years foundation stage profile measure at the end of reception um, and there's far greater detail around reading comprehension and writing but without securing children's development in their personal social emotional physical and communication and language skills literacy and maths development won't flourish um, it's also incredibly important that practitioners focus on children's characteristics of effective learning, um, just as Rachel's saying there, and children's motivation, their engagement and their creative and critical thinking um, are dispositions and attitudes which are time sensitive and they impact on a child's lifelong progress to learning. So it's really important in early years that the focus is as much on those because they're the building blocks for acquiring essential life skills. And Rachel, in response to this, or at least at the same time as this, um, you've convened a national conference on assessment. Can you tell us a little bit about the impetus behind um, why this is happening now? Was it to do with the pandemic or was it always going to happen anyway? This is a really exciting initiative and it's bringing together the HFL assessment team with early years, primary, secondary, special. It's a conference for practitioners in all schools and settings, working with young people of all ages. And it's partly been motivated by the fact that during the pandemic, I think many practitioners are taking a fresh look at assessment. And it's partly by being influenced by my work on the Rethinking Assessment core group. It's an opportunity to bring together some national thought leaders in this arena of assessment to explore and present and lead workshops on what great assessment looks like at different key stages and in different types of institutions. We're delighted to welcome several uh, speakers at the conference who are coming to present an international perspective. We've got a head teacher who's opened a school in the Dominican Republic, um, a head teacher from an international school in Geneva. We've got some uh, academics and thought leaders and writers uh, around assessment, and we've got some head teachers and practitioners um, in, in schools in Hertfordshire and in London and uh, right across the country. We think it's going to be a great opportunity for attendees to have their, their thoughts and their maybe assumptions provoked and challenged and to hear a range of different perspectives from people who are firm advocates of a return to a full examination system when the pandemic's over for students taking GCSE A-level, et cetera, exams, right through to those people who would throw everything up in the air and produce something radically different and all sorts of shades in between. So who is this for? Do I have to have assessment in my job title or related to one of my TLRs in order to attend? Or is it for any class teacher or who, who would you envisage might be here? Absolutely anyone who's interested in the role of educators, the role of teachers, the craft of teaching, uh, the design of the curriculum and the best way of evidencing the impact of it. Because as we've been saying, Murray and I, throughout this podcast, assessment and curriculum and pedagogy are all absolutely interwoven. Um, what we teach tends to be informed by what we assess. Uh, what we value is very much determined by uh, what we measure. And therefore, it's so important 
that we ensure that we have an assessment system right through from early years to um, post 16 that is really valuing and assessing what we think is important for children to experience in um, right through from sort of preschool and nursery through to sixth form and that it's enabling students and young people to really showcase their full and broad range of skills and achievements and attributes for them and for their self-esteem as a really fair and full record of their experience and their life to date and for future employers and higher education providers to ensure that their transition at each stage of the education journey and through beyond schooling is as productive and successful as possible. And since the pandemic has hit um, anyone who's anyone and quite a few people who maybe weren't anyone before have authored videos and issued podcasts and had their say on everything from assessment to classroom practice. How will this be structured? I've been to loads of conferences and I've heard people who I kind of know of. And I know that actually if I'd have gone to YouTube, I could have heard exactly what they were going to say in front of me at that conference. How is this going to be different um, in terms of interaction with people who I already know I like or I already know who I probably disagree with? Will it be different? Absolutely, it will be. In. It's going to be very interactive. Um, so we have four keynote speakers who are each going to give a pitch as to their vision of what an optimal or utopian assessment system post-pandemic would look like. Um, they will give very contrasting views. There then will be a debate involving the four of them, moderated by Anne Ross, the ex-editor of the Times Educational Supplement. And then we'll have a break and a little bit of time to digest and cogitate on what we've heard. And then we will move into three sessions of um, workshops and in each of those three time periods there'll be the opportunity for delegates to choose between three or four different workshops they'll go to one from each of the three sets and there'll be workshops on all sorts of themes ranging from early years to primary to secondary to post-16 to what employers are looking for from assessment to international perspectives to what undergraduates reflect and postgraduates reflect having looked back at their post-school assessment systems as well. And would you encourage people just to follow the stream that they are currently working in? Or would you say, for example, someone from the early years would benefit by going to someone uh, who might be presenting on Key Stage 1 or Key Stage 2? I think it's horses for courses. I think some people perhaps new into role or wanting to hear about alternative ways of managing assessment in the, the phase or setting they're in might find it interesting to go to uh, a presentation from somebody who's working in the same phase or, or um, type of setting. But I think people who are really inquisitive and want to know about the previous bit of the assessment journey or the next stage, or just hear from somebody from a totally different perspective or field and have their thinking challenged and provoked a little bit, will enjoy going to radically different presentations. When is it running? It's on the 15th of September. Um, bookings are open now. Uh, and anyone can find the details from the HFL website. And during that conference, we're going to have people presenting on their view of the post-pandemic um, assessment universe. Can I ask each of you, starting with Marae, um, if you had one element of an assessment system, either for your particular sector or the entire school sector, uh, that was non-negotiable, that was at the heart of everything uh, that everyone did, whether that's a process, a procedure, an attitude, what would it be, Marae? 
That's a really tough question, Ian. But I think for me, it goes back to that really high quality formative assessment, that ongoing assessment that leads to really truly responsive pedagogy and practice. Thank you. And how about you, Rachel? What's your kind of, uh, what's the, uh, the mother load, if you like, for your uh, assessment uh, universe? For me, a great assessment system needs to be interdisciplinary, it needs to be multimodal, it needs to be really holistic and incorporate a range of measures. It's probably something like an e-portfolio that enables uh, a prospective employer or HE provider to see a whole range of performance data for, for a young person. I think any secondary school teacher would say that the last few weeks of generating, moderating, standardising teacher assessed grades has been as stressful as anything they've ever been through. Yet I do firmly believe, and I know that many of them would also say, that the empowerment of teachers to have a determination of the grades that children leave school with is really important. And over the last 10 years or more, we've seen a gradual erosion in most disciplines and subject areas of coursework or controlled assessments. And that has led to teachers newer into the profession, not having had that voice or not having had the autonomy or the accountability to be part of the conversation that determines how evidence, how achievements are evidence. And I would really hope that coming out of the pandemic, albeit in a much more structured and pre-prepared way, we can retain that voice of teacher professionals because there is nobody who understands what young people are capable of and can do and can uh, achieve and know than the teachers who've worked with them and understand them best. Thanks. I think those are two really um, good principles to leave us with. So thank you to Rachel and Marie for taking the time out to chat to us today. And thank you to our listeners. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. If you would like to listen to more of our podcasts, simply visit the EdTalks UK page on Spotify.